Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, and we are here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, where we are joined today by columnist for Anahar Daily, Hisham Mellum, and by David Sanger of the New York Times and Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and in sunny California, sunny Corey Shockey of Stanford <laughs> University. Um, and we are going to begin our discussion today in another sunny, if troubled, climate, and that's the Middle East. Um, And I'd like to start, since Hisham is an expert in this area, with a thesis, and I would like you to respond to the thesis. My thesis is that the Trump news about Jerusalem, which made such big headlines last week, was a complete scam. First of all, Trump was announcing what other presidents have announced, He followed his announcement by extending the waiver for another six months of actually doing anything. The State Department then said that they would be treating people who were born in Jerusalem precisely the way they have always treated them, by not saying they were born in Israel. And then Tillerson said that there is no way that the move will happen in 2018, which pushes it to the potentially beyond Donald Trump future. But in any event, it all sounds a lot like all the other presidents— who said, yes, we believe Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and no, we're not going to do anything about it right now, maybe in the indefinite future. And so what Trump has gotten out of this is, um, as, as Tom Friedman wrote in a good column, nothing in exchange for it, and unrest, but he actually didn't do anything. It's like the worst of all possible worlds. Except, That's my thesis. Except that he pleased the evangelical except that he pleased his uh, donors, uh, including uh, the owner of, of casinos, who shall remain uh, unnamed. Uh, Sheldon, look, this was Sheldon Adelson. Sheldon that, Adelson. That unnamed person? Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, look, I mean, the word gratuitous was created for these actions. The word gratuitous was created for these actions. He was pandering to his own base. He wanted to, <laughs> he, he, he wanted to say, I am contrarian. I am bold. I'm courageous. Unlike the previous but it's uh, presidents. But bullshit. It is. It is. But, but uh, again, uh, tell that to the, to the base. I mean, well, tell that, and tell that to those people who were wounded or killed in the Middle East during, during, during the, the, the demonstrations. Like you said, he got nothing in return. The Israelis are happy. Uh, the, uh, the, the evangelicals are happy. Uh, his Arab friends are embarrassed. The Iranians got this thing and are running with it, embarrassing the Egyptians and the Saudis and the, and the Jordanians. And, uh, and, and, you know, you hear uh, Nikki Haley yesterday saying, well, Jerusalem is not that important because the Arabs now are focused only on the threat, major threat to them, which is Iran. They think that when they go to Saudi Arabia and listen to Mohammed bin Salman telling them about the Iranian threat, which is, by the way, a legitimate threat and, and 
and their concerns are are are, are legitimate. They think that they that, that they don't care about Jerusalem. And even if they don't care about Jerusalem, there are a lot of people in the Arab world and the Muslim world, Christians and 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 Muslims who really care about Jerusalem. And, and then on top of this, they sort of buy this Saudi line of the moment, which is, well, we don't want to destroy Israel this week, and therefore. They think, well, everything's going to be fine between the Israelis and the Saudis. There are no issues. We I mean, can move on our agenda. It's silly to think that the enmity towards Iran, which is, you know, exists between the United States and the Arabs, especially in the Gulf and Israel, that, that that could be enough of a base, a sufficient, necessary and sufficient base to create a new alliance. Enmity towards others is not a base to create an alliance. Alliance usually based on genuine interests, on sometimes va- common values. They don't exist. They don't exist. If you have a change in Iran, the whole ballgame will change in the Middle East. Let's not forget that at one time, Israel and Iran were extremely close when the Shah of Iran was there. So uh, 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 just to buy what they are being sold in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia and other places is really is, 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 is not true. I mean, it's the United States is alienating more people in the Middle East at a time when the president is, is tweeting about... Um, uh, a, a crazy tweets about uh, uh, Islam that are seen as insulting, and and then he does this thing with Jerusalem. So that sounds bad, but he said he was appealing to his base. But sooner or later, Bibi Netanyahu, even perhaps pretty dim bulb Jared Kushner, um, and the. Uh, Others who are evangelicals in his his base are going to realize the president's not actually doing anything. And then he's going to piss them off, right? You know, David, you're making that classic Washington mistake where you are trying to confuse (laughs) symbolism with actually getting something done. I mean, how long have you lived in this city? Really? Okay. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. I I, Yes. I I think that your new status as a married man has somehow dulled dulled (laughs) that part of your brain that actually measures (laughs) measures things in Washington by actual accomplishments. I I actually don't notice any difference in the nature of your criticism of me before my marriage (laughs) and after my marriage. David is consistent. For those of us, for those of us, you know, around the podcast who actually witnessed this wonderful event this weekend, David actually made something actually happen in Washington this weekend, which is, you know, he got a wonderful, brilliant, beautiful opera singer to actually not only agree to marry him, but then marry him. Okay, whereas. And by the way, somebody asked me at the ceremony, so what does the groom do? I said, ah, he runs a podcast. So anyway, <laughs> that's, that's another thing. But what, what I think you've, you've gotten at here is this is all about symbolism and this is all about domestic politics. So the domestic politics you've just covered, okay? The symbolism here is much more important to this administration, in my view, than the question of the actuality because – the fact of the matter is it won't make the slightest bit of difference to Bibi Netanyahu or anybody else if the ambassador for the next couple of years or permanently drives over from uh, Tel Aviv or takes a shorter trip from around the corner from the King David Hotel. All they need to know is that a president of the United States is now lined up with a Congress that voted repeatedly 
to recognize Jerusalem as the capital. That's the only thing that matters to them. So what's the, what's the reality here? There's a possibility that they could get away with this and get away with it with a methodology I'd love to hear everybody else on the panel discuss, which is that um, the Saudis now may see a reason to give a pile of money to the Palestinians to get them to have sort of co-capitals of which uh, Jerusalem would be one and something that they could actually operate from would be another. And that would, in their hope, solve part of that problem. And then you would have a situation where the PLO might conceivably be able to sort of move on to the next step having been bought off on this. I agree with you, though, to give this away to the Israelis without getting anything for it strikes me as a pretty odd way to do diplomacy. And Mr. Luce, before we turn to Ms. Shockey, um, do you think there is a price to pay for all this bullshit? Um, look, if, if, if you gave um, uh, the Jared Kushner-led, inverted commas, peace effort, you know, any any odds before before this, um, which I didn't, and which nobody, you know, I think with any common sense did. But if you did give it odds... I think Ivanka was believing. Ivanka might now have downgraded her odds for her husband's uh, peace effort. Wow. I think, Even I she think is... That's the big she. shift. That's the big shift. Well, she didn't I, endorse Roy Moore either. <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. Um, I, I, think, I think that that's... Um, that's about the the worst you can say for its impact on the peace effort on the ground. I think Trump's, you know, doing something that he is better than any of us um, at doing, and perhaps better than anybody in the world at doing, and that is changing the subject and is disrupting the media narratives and keeping us wrong-footed and stoking outrage that, you know, might cost him and America incalculable amounts over the long term, but which in the short term... Um, really delivers a schadenfreude kind of pleasure to his base. And that, of course, includes the evangelical base on the eve of Roy Moore's special election, win or defeat, who knows. Um, and so I, I think we should never underestimate the shallow, short-term winning the Twitter wars um, element of this. But he did promise this, you know, it, during the campaign. He promised this in a couple of set-piece speeches, APAC and elsewhere, um, he um, has delivered it. Um, and that, of course, is a very different time frame to winning a, t a Twitter war. So there is a bigger agenda here um, that you know, I, th I find very, very troubling. That is Trump telling people he means what he says and says what he means. And one fears that that's also true of other things he's promised and has, has not yet delivered on. What? <laughs> well, what? You're, I'm disillusioned. You think Donald Trump has said things that he's going to do that he's not actually going to do? Well, I don't think he'll actually physically ever build a wall with Mexico so or get no Mexico to pay for it. So there's no wall with Mexico and there's no real move of the uh, embassy to Jerusalem? If he wasn't really and, doing things— And he's not going to like have fire and yeah. fury with North Korea? Don't— he did get a, he did get out of the climate accord, right? Yeah, okay. maybe. Maybe. Is pretty maybe. Actually, we're okay. not sure that he and, actually and is he, getting out of the climate accord. And he took a halfway step toward getting toward 
decertifying but not eliminating the Iran deal. So this is perfect. All he cares about is that he can go in front of a big crowd and say, I, I decertified the right. deal. I, I moved the embassy to Jerusalem, yeah. and I got transgenders out of the military, even though the courts have and now said, said... They start going into they, the military right. in January. Again, right. right. But you're, you, you can't... You can't forget that the one thing he worries about is what he can say at those campaign rallies. Corey, first, before we get any further, I'm sure you want to comment on Ed's creation of the word schadenfreude. (laughs) (laughs) Ask, schadenfreude-esque. But that would be German plus Freud. You know, Explain it to Trump. (laughs) Ed being this podcast's Athens to the rest of our Rome, I just oh, assumed boy. that wow. he was actually making up some great new word that the rest of us were going to have to scramble and figure out how to use in our provincial country. I thought he was more like <laughs> Athens to the rest of our Sparta. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're decadent. We're not as developed as Athens. I that remark. <laughs> He's Pericles now. <laughs> um, so to the subject at hand, uh, I... I agree that President Trump's uh, motivation for uh, moving, for declaring he would move the embassy to Jerusalem, uh, has nothing to do with the good of Israelis or Palestinians or the broader Middle East, because I see no evidence of the capacity to deconflict competing priorities on the part of this White House. Uh, And it seems entirely plausible to me that either uh, he was fearing he would have nothing to announce uh, for having achieved in the first year, or Vice President Pence had persuaded him that assisting Christian minorities in the Middle East to the exclusion of their Muslim neighbors is somehow good for those communities, as opposed to buying resentment and ill will in Egypt and Iraq and other places um, for them. Or uh, David Sanger's uh, suggestion that this is the president just wanting something to announce at campaign rallies. The error in your logic David Sanger, you having fallen victim to the classic Washington blunder of thinking that it would actually have to have some basis in truth for the president to announce that at his rallies, as opposed to just saying whatever he wants, uh, irrespective of the validity of the argument, which is why I think that's not the, the carrying argument. I think is this is this a departure from the you're exactly right, David? <laughs> <laughs> slightly. slightly. I think it's you as know, far I away as you could get. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping the meandering, discursive nature of that answer would hide that. <laughs> Which is what we look for here on Deep State Radio. Meandering and discursive. In fact, it may be on a mug someday. Deep State Radio. Meandering and discursive. So here's what the president, here's what I think nobody has said yet that I also think is true, which is that I don't think the president cares whether anything actually happens. I think he only cares that he can wave his hands and say he did it. So what I notice on policy all the way across the board 
um, in national security for from increasing defense spending, which was not in his budget. The Congress required it, and now they're uh, pretending it's actually going to happen to uh, policy on on in the Middle East to dealing with the Europeans is that the president believes if he says it, it's true. And there's no conveyor belt that connect, or there's no fan belt that connects the engine, different parts of the engine. There's just nothing going on here. Well, Hisham, you know, I, th- I, I think, by the way, Corey is exactly right that, you know, there is nothing going on here, that the president hey! doesn't care. The president doesn't care what he's, you know, s- says, but that we have something else going on here, which is with regard to Jerusalem, but we have seen it with regard to a host of other issues, is that the president says A, and the State Department says B. And and we have two completely different foreign policies, go, or, or the Defense Department says B, two completely foreign, different foreign policies going on at the same time. And, so, and the president does and no, and nobody seems to care what the president says. David mentioned the LGBT thing and the Department of Defense. Department of Defense said, eh, no, we're not going to do that. And the State Department would launch this thing with Jerusalem and Department of State said, mm, no, we're not going to do that. And the president says, we're going to blow up North Korea. And Tillerson says, no, actually, we're talking to North Korea. And so well, on. Oh, wait, that one's not fully played out yet, yeah. well, as Corey true. made the point earlier uh, last week. <laughs> No, that's that's true. But, yeah. but but having said that, there does seem to be a pattern here where you know there have been divisions in the past. You know, Colin Powell didn't like Donald Rumsfeld, or you know, but not like that, not like that. But 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 this complete divide with the president off in a bubble, saying whatever he wants, and these departments sort of saying back back in April on the same day when the president was lambasting Qatar and accusing Qatar at the highest level of supporting and funding terrorism, Tillerson was saying something completely different. Tillerson, In that case, is, Trump was actually right. And, but, yeah, but the point is, uh, uh, you know, they are confusing everybody in the Middle East, let alone the world. You know? And that's why some people now call the White House and talk to Jared Kushner. And not necessarily to to uh, to uh, Rex Tillerson. Well, they don't. Uh, th- th- they don't call the White House and talk to Dina Powell anymore. Of course. Well, Dina Dina's leaving. Not that uh, you know Dina was making uh, you know but, uh, great well, strategic but she positions. Was, she was an interlocutor. That's true. With the Arab and she, world, and she's one and of the few left. sane ones. She's one of the few sane ones at the NSC. I know. I mean, I know her. But uh, uh, but look, uh, the way they are dealing with the in the Middle Eastern issues, whether talking about the war in Yemen, talk about the conflict with uh, between uh, Saudi Arabia and Lebanon. I mean, there is a, a great deal of daylight between the State Department, between Tillerson and uh, and and the president, and everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Jim Mattis is the man who is the, who is the adult in the room. They, they assume that John Kelly is the adult in the room, but apparently John Kelly is, is strengthening all the, the impulses, the negative impulses of the president. So this is creating a situation in the world where there's a great deal of confusion. Uh, uh, people don't look anymore, even the allies, don't look at the United States as the not only the political leader, but the moral leader uh, of, of, uh, of the so-called free world. And this is what we have now. This that matters. But David, the lying New York Times, um, you know, lying want- failing. Oh, the lying, failing New York Times. The By lying, the way, failing New York Times that just hit three and a half million subscribers. Yeah, <laughs> better than ever in its history. Yeah, and, right. Right. But, but there was a moment there where they were kind of, maybe John Kelly's going to fix everything. 
Yeah, I think there Do were. Do you a want lot to of, apologize on behalf of the paper? Uh, no, I want to apologize on behalf of John Kelly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, I think Kelly. I think Kelly got misread a little bit uh, by us and by everybody. And um, I think that not actually no, because I believe it was the Financial Times had a column by. Oh, me, <laughs> um, right after Gellick was appointed, and uh, which the analogy was offered up that he was like a tiny child in one of those car seats with a steering wheel while Trump was in the car. And John Kelly may have thought that he was steering the car, but actually he wasn't. Um, Kelly, it turns out, I think is more ideologically aligned with the president that I guessed, and I think many of my colleagues, not only at the Times, but elsewhere, uh, guessed at the time. Um, but Kelly is fine, I think, with the president doing what Corey just described, which is making a series of announcements even if he's getting contradicted or even if they're halfway. And Corey, because I can never imagine myself in disagreement with you, I actually think we were saying, and I was probably just saying it inarticulately, pretty much the same thing, which is oh, excellent. The, the president is the president's willing to go out there and do anything for the symbolism of signing off on it and telling his base. I don't think he's particularly keeping score about whether or not the Pentagon or the State Department keeps track of it. He's keeping score if a member of the cabinet is quoted or is rumored to have said something nasty about it. Well, that's but, a good question. So, Corey, Nikki Haley um, this weekend said two things, one of which sounded like it was covering the president's um, back on Jerusalem, and then something else on the women that have accused the president um, that sounded like mm. she was gently nudging him under the bus. Um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on either. Um, my thought is that uh, the 2020 Republican primary where Nikki Haley challenges Trump is going to be fantastic as a spectator sport. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's going to be very entertaining. <laughs> I, have to, I have to say, but I think Trump is going to be wearing an orange suit by then. But that's another story. Uh, so to the subjects at hand, I do think it's important that she said that women should be heard. It's far short from saying uh, she believes them. They've made credible cases. The president's behavior is unsuitable for the leader of this country. Like there's a lot she could have said that she didn't. Um, but it's not nothing that she said what she did. And as a member of the president's cabinet, where, as David said, the president's well known to be watching everybody on TV for seven hours a day and and holding grudges about anything that isn't fawning over him. So so it's to her credit that she did it. I'm intensely curious to see whether that will overshadow uh, the strident defense she made of the president's decisions on Jerusalem, which I have to say, listening to, I found very persuasive. I had to keep reminding myself, that's actually not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, something that we all need to, we need to practice a little bit. Another thing that's happened in the Middle East this week, 
um, is that Vladimir Putin is making a victory tour of the Middle East, Hisham, um, and he's declaring victory and he's building his networks. And in fact, it's kind of an interesting contrast because another world leader, and by that, of course, I mean St. Michael of Pence, um, uh, um, it, it, it seems to be getting snubbed. <laughs> and, and Mahmoud Abbas said, yeah, I don't think I'm going to meet with this dude. Um, so there, there seems to be contrasting fortunes there, yes? Yeah, I mean, you know, Mike Pence with that fake religiosity of him, fake re- religiosity, he's not going to be received by the Pope of the Coptic Church in Egypt. Uh, and he claims that he is going to the Middle East in part to defend the rights of the Christians, uh, Christian minorities there. Uh, look, Vladimir Putin. Uh, it's a great mission. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, he toured three countries in one day, Syria, Egypt, and Turkey. In Syria, he declared victory. He essentially acted like a lion, you know, leaving his scent around permanently that I, I own this place. Uh, now that they I have, I think lion is a good analogy. I, when you say that, it makes me think of a dog and a fire hydrant. <laughs> 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 <And laughs> I no, 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 but I mean, he left his scent in Syria. This is a permanent place for me. And now I'm going to Egypt and 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 see if I can add to my range in Egypt and in Turkey. While the old competitor. American competitor, spending his time at his resort in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, there's no American presence in the real sense politically in the Middle East. And everybody feels it. It's the same in Europe. This is really, talk about, you know, David Sanger, the other David is talking about symbolism. There's a great deal of symbolism in Putin touring Syria, Egypt, and Turkey in one day and act strutting. He's strutting as a victor, you know? And, and uh, uh, that's another reminder that he's selling anti-aircraft missiles developed to Turkey, a NATO country, on the watch of Donald Trump. This was, I mean, could have, who would have thunk it? And he is doing it. And the Syria visit was as much about President Obama. It was, it was President Obama who stood up at the White House and told all of us... This is their, their, back, their Afghanistan. This is their Afghanistan. This is their Vietnam. Sure, They'll be bogged sure. down. Yeah, yeah. Give them a few months. And so... It's a you know, great point, David. You know, his, his, um, she's, see, she's finally Corey's coming like, back. Corey's <laughs> like, yes, let's kick Obama a little bit. I'm with you, Corey. <laughs> um, so, um, they, the, you know, to some degree, Putin really wanted to go prove that he had a form of staying power here that the United States frequently has not had in the Middle East. Well, Putin has managed to pull off something that the U.S. hasn't, and that is to go in, have the achieve a short-term victory militarily, achieve a short-term victory politically, and achieve long-term goals in terms of basing himself in the region, uh, which he is now expanding his long-term footprint in the region, uh, without being accused of the quagmire and without getting bogged down too much, and actually doing something that the U.S. has not been very good at, which is using other people's forces to achieve his goals, whether it's, you know, in some cases rebels, in some cases the Kurds, in some cases the U.S., in some cases uh, the Iranians. Um, this, this, you know, it, 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 in, in some ways, d- don't you think maybe, Corey, that 
that that Putin's Syria approach should be studied in the same textbooks in which we study Afghanistan and Vietnam? You know, my least favorite meaningless trope from the Obama administration was that there is no military solution to this problem. Exactly. And I feel like exactly. that's going to be on the joining page where where Vladimir Putin shows up to talk about the military victory that Russian air power and Iranian ground power gave Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And and so the the victories that the Russians have scored don't mark Vladimir Putin as 10 feet tall or a genius. It just, as our frequent uh, deep state radio colleague, Julia Yaffe, uh, talks about in the cover story on The Atlantic, it just shows that he's ruthless and adaptive and seizes opportunities and places bets instead of either deterring himself by what possible consequences could happen uh, or being unwilling to advance this country's interests, which I think uh, President Trump is failing to advance the country's interests because of uh, a short attention span and ill-founded views on important strategic issues. And President Obama was not willing to because to his credit, he genuinely believed the country was overextended and we needed to focus on issues at home. By the way, Julia Yaffe will appear on the podcast next week again, and she will talk about her cover story. Um, and undoubtedly, more Russia news, because uh, I don't think Russia has been in the news as much since 1991 as it has been in the past year or will be in the next year. Um, <laughs> David, I'm sorry. I have to interrupt this podcast for a second to tell you the most hilarious thing I have just seen. The White House put out a statement on Friday about those suffering under the yoke of authoritarianism, and it's not, and it's spelled Y-O-L-K. Oh, my God. Wow. The oh yoke's on God. them. <laughs> oh my god I'm sorry for that for going down that rabbit hole but there is no group of people that I means you can like fry it share that with <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah, rarely a statement issued by the White House that does not include these you know mista grammatical mistakes or okay spelling. over to you Ed for an egg on their face joke uh, I think it's already been made. Um, First of all, isn't that the British spelling of yoke? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. I protest. I'm still feeling um, schadenfreude about, about Corey's, Corey's put-down of David, um, although she tried to make, to make up for it. Uh, I would say on the uh, Trump, having two foreign policies, uh, obviously two sets of dictionaries and spellings as well, but two foreign policies, that if Tillerson is replaced by Mike Pompeo, you might get an alignment um, there. He's the best. He's the most skilled person um, in the administration at aligning himself with Trump and making Trump feel like his, he's his best friend. Skilled? Skilled, yes. I think it takes some skill to brief Trump um, about the world out there and make and Trump he, think he like he thought of 20 it. Minutes. Exactly. No, no, but I mean, and Pompeo, to make Trump the hero I of every briefing. Pompeo um, and Hope Hicks and um, uh, uh, Sarah Huckabee um, have all been sort of trained for their jobs in the administration at a school for 
chihuahuas and shih tzu yeah. because it's like pure lapdog city. They just, whatever the boss says, they're like... <laughs> oh, the difference is, though, that, that Pompeo's head of the CIA and putative head of the State Department. He could be the head of the State Department, um, although please explain something to me, Washington insiders. Why is Lindsey Graham going off on this incredible ass-kissing uh, bender with 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 Trump if he doesn't think he's does he want to be the head of the CIA what does he think he's got in this well first the you notice that the way David put that was to suggest that we but not he <laughs> Washington <laughs> is a Washington insider okay Mr. Deep State himself <laughs> okay. I deny that there is an existence of a deep state I deny having right. anything to do with it I deny knowing anything about it it doesn't exist it doesn't exist I deny knowing about Lindsey Graham's but my Pompeo point's quite serious because I think the one area where Trump is aligned with his principle is Lighthizer on trade. And that the trade agenda, his populist trade agenda and his promises are actually something that his trade representative, Lighthizer, wants to carry out. Lighthizer has a grudge against the WTO. He hates NAFTA. China hates China. Hates China. Um, if we get Pompeo at state, we might not have two foreign policies. Um, I think Pompeo will anticipate and align himself with what Trump wants um, in a way that Lighthizer is doing. Maybe not with the same degree of knowledge and technical grasp that Lighthizer has after 40 years in trade, but with a degree of competence um, uh, and closeness to the president that Tillerson doesn't have. And so we might see less of a distance between the two foreign policies, the Washington as normal and the Trump tweet under a Pompeo but State Department. But that will leave the Secretary of Defense Indeed. isolated and alone then. Indeed. Well, not exactly entirely alone, because I would think that even though he is rather ineffective in this mix, H.R. McMaster is a little more in the, the, the Mattis camp than he would be in the Pompeo camp. Okay. If you I'm, could see the blinking sure of David right. Sanger's eyes here, I'm trying to read them, and either he disagrees with me or he's having a minor stroke. Or <laughs> <laughs> about to say something genius. <laughs> it, could be, it could be both things simultaneously. Um, I actually think that... Or one could be causing the other. Yeah, so... <laughs> blinking's causing the stroke? Or <laughs> um, that said by the woman who is the woman of alternative spellings, right? Not alternative facts. Right? <laughs> so I actually think that McMaster may be in the end on some critical issues like Korea more aligned with Pompeo. It's McMaster who has been talking about preventive or preemptive strikes. It's Pompeo who's been sitting out there trying to think about how to do exactly that in a covert way at the CIA. I don't see that critically. That's what the CIA director is paid to go to work to think about. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure that, uh, that they will um, be at odds. In fact, I could imagine a world in which McMaster and Pompeo are more aligned with each other than they are at times with Mattis. I sense that. You sense that yeah, too. Yeah, I sense, I sense that. That I think you know, uh, Matt, uh, uh, James Mattis will be by 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 his lonesome, in the end, if Pompeo takes over the the state. Corey, uh, isn't this a moment where you're supposed to step in and say, David, you're exactly right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yes, it's always that moment. It is always the season <laughs> for those glad tidings, David. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, uh, uh, to, to me, the, the, the most successful relationship between the president and the secretary of state was Jim Baker. And I think uh, I would, I'd be interested in what David would say about that. You, you, I mean, you need somebody who can stand his own with the president and disagree with him, you know, as, 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 as a loyalist. But someone with the, with the gravitas. I would say Bush and Condi Rice would be. Uh, Bush and Condi Rice, yeah. I mean, yeah. Condi Rice did a, a bet, much better job at state than at, at the NSC. Yeah. Because she was clobbered by Rumsfeld and, and, uh, and, and Cheney. Uh, but Baker remains, Baker Bush, Bush one, uh, remains really the model. And, and that's why it was most, most successful in terms of dealing with the reunification of Germany, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the first, uh, first war, uh, Panama, and all of these things. You don't want someone who, who is intimidated by the president. And I think there is a degree of intimidation, uh, even with McMaster, even maybe with Pompeo. I mean, the man intimidates them. I don't see that with Mattis. Uh, but maybe, I mean, I, 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 I met Mattis a couple of times. I don't know him very well. But I think uh, if you get Cotton, for instance, at CIA, I mean, come on, I mean, or Lindsey Graham, they, they, everybody will be, will be singing to the same, uh, w w reading the same notes and with, uh, with Trump being the maestro. And that, that would be scary, especially on North Korea. Well, I have to say, I, per personally, I think those are among the examples that would come up for successful president-secretary of state relationships. But... Um, one of the things that distinguishes Bush and, and uh, Bush 41 and Baker is that Bush 41 actually knew what he wanted to do in foreign policy. He actually had a worldview. It's what distinguished Nixon and Kissinger. Nixon had a much clearer view of foreign policy on some issues than did Kissinger and was, was, was the leader there. There will be no mistaking this administration for those administrations in terms of, in terms of um, uh, the, the behavior of this president or the knowledge of this president. Look, we've come to the end of this exciting episode, but the good news is there will be another episode in two days. So, you know, sit there, set your timers, 48 hours from now, you will get to, or whenever you listen to these things, binge listening on the weekend, you will be able to listen to another episode starring all of these great people, Corey, Hisham, Ed, and David. Uh, but instead of talking about the Middle East, we're going to talk about someplace even more chaotic, which is Washington, D.C. So thank you, David. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Hisham. Thank you, Corey. And please join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.